Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. You might also know me as the host of the TV show of the same name on True TV, which, by the way, is back. You can find new episodes of Adam Ruins Everything every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. Central people, you know when, 9 p.m. Central on True TV. And you can also find clips and full episodes of the show at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. And hey, you can also buy it on iTunes and Google and stuff like that. But what are we doing on the podcast? Well, on this show, I talk to researchers, academics, scientists, journalists, experts about the work they do and why it is so fascinating and mind-blowing. Today's guest is Professor Stephen Lewandowski. He previously appeared on our TV episode, Emily Ruins, Adam Ruins Everything, where he discussed the backfire effect and how difficult it is to change people's minds, which was very difficult for me to hear because my entire career is based around trying to change people's minds through comedy, but the fact is it's a lot harder than we'd like to think. Steve is the chair in cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol in the UK, and we are so excited to have Stephen join us today from the UK, talking to him all the way across the pond. Let's get right to the interview. Great. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and, and being here with us. Thanks for having me. It's great. Uh, could you uh, uh, just, we talked about it a lot on the show, but could you summarize really quickly what the backfire effect is? Well, the backfire effect arises when you're trying to uh, correct people's misperceptions or misconceptions. And then instead of them changing their mind, they become more entrenched in their false beliefs. So, for example, there's there a number of demonstrations of that effect out there. And one example involves people who are um, very critical of childhood vaccinations. If you tell them that, you know, vaccinations are actually extremely safe and they um, keep your children alive, they protect them against diseases, then... People who are hesitant to begin with will afterwards be even more reluctant to have their children vaccinated. So you get the exact opposite effect of what you're trying to achieve. And that happens on a number of occasions in some contexts, often enough for us for us to be concerned about it. So I'm so interested in how do you establish an effect like this? Like you say, those people become you know more reluctant. How are you? Uh, is there like an experimental context in which you're? Yeah, you do this, this as an as an experiment. So you take a large number of uh, people, you know, sort of online panels, or even people um, at random whom you recruit through MTurk or through uh, newspaper ads or whatever. And you randomly assign them to one condition or another. And then in one condition, what you do is you apply this intervention. You you tell them about vaccinations and then ask their attitudes. And in another condition, you don't do that. You just ask uh, people's attitudes, but nothing further. And then you can compare the two conditions. And because the participants were randomly assigned to one condition or the other, you can be fairly confident that the only difference between conditions is the intervention that you've conducted. So that's one way in which you can test those um, ideas. And of course, another way of doing it is simply to ask people twice, once before and once after the intervention, what their intentions are and what their feelings are, and then you can uh, detect a shift. So you've got these two groups and one of them is now more reluctant to use vaccinations on their on their kids. And the only difference is that they're the ones who were told that vaccinations were safe. Precisely. That's a that's a really stunning result. Uh, And and why do you think that happens or do you have evidence for why that happens? We have a pretty good idea why it happens, because it only happens in situations where people have strong prior opinions and in situations where people feel that their overall worldview is being threatened by the information that you tell them. So that's why I was saying this vaccination effect only occurs in people who are um, already predisposed against vaccinations before you apply the intervention. And there are other examples for uh, one other 
quite important study that was done by colleagues some time ago by Brendan Nyhan and uh, Jason Reifler is where they um, got people in a, in a similar experiment and then informed them that there were no weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq after the invasion of 2003. Now, that was a long time ago. People may not remember what went on. So just briefly, um, that was under the George W. Bush administration. There was a um, fear that Iraq was harboring these dreadful weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, and so on. And basically, a war was launched in order to get rid of these weapons of mass destruction. Um, But as it turns out, there weren't any. Man, thank you for taking us back to those uh, what almost seemed like uh, our halcyon day, like uh, a simpler time back in the mid 2000s when that was. <laughs> well, it was simple because in the sense it was just one big thing that happened to be wrong. You know, there was yes. everybody was talking about weapons of mass destruction and then they weren't there. So that yes. was very simple um, yes. in a sense. But the funny thing is, going back to this experiment, if you tell people that there weren't any. Um, such weapons of mass destruction, then those people who thought they were there to begin with and who happened to be Republicans, uh, they became even more convinced that they were there, contrary to all evidence and contrary to what they were being told. So that's, again, a backfire effect. And the reason, again, that it arises is because the correction and the information they're being presented with is challenging their worldviews. And it is, it is questioning something that goes beyond the narrow issue of weapons of mass destruction. It goes right to the heart of who they are, namely supporters of President Bush and who, who thought that he was doing the right thing. And for them, you know, we, we know that any time worldviews are being challenged, um, people defend them. And one way yeah. to defend your worldview is to just believe what you believe to begin with, but even more strongly after you're told it's wrong. Well, now, before we get more deeply into that idea, because that's really interesting to me, uh, do you find this – because uh, this is the sort of thing that a lot of people you know, will say, oh, yeah, I know that the other side does that all the time, You know that where, where uh, a, a Republican will say that about a Democrat or a Democrat will say that about a Republican. In the U.S. anyway, I know you have different, uh, different affiliations um, over in the U.K. where you are, but um, is this – this is a universal human uh, response, right? This isn't just – you know, something that you see in people of one particular ideological stripe. No, it's uh, I, no, it's 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 not just one particular ideology. I think that is part of uh, um, you know what it means to be human. If you have a strong worldview, if you have a strong idea, whatever it may be, about how the world should operate, and then somebody tells you, "Well, actually, no, that's not the way it works," or somebody tells you something about a specific fact that you relied on in order to support your worldview, then, um, yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's vaccinations, weapons of mass destruction, it doesn't matter what your personal worldviews are, you will find it very difficult to accept um, that there is something that you believe that was false. And uh, now, I've discussed this sort of topic um, in you know a number of different ways on you know my show or on the election special we did last year on that special we talked about uh, a concept called identity protective cognition exactly which seems seems very related to me well it that's not? basically what we're observing here is precisely that it is people trying to protect their worldviews their identity and um, people will do a lot of interesting things to protect their worldviews and their identity when it's being threatened. The most interesting way I ever read, and I forget where I read this, so, so you know, apologies to the to the author who I'm paraphrasing with no credit, but um, uh, about identity protective cognition is when you look at it in terms of what it means to the person, it actually makes sense as a response. Like if you look at a, you know, say a super, super conservative, uh, you know, pundit, for example, who's, you know, arguing that, uh, you know, climate change mm. is, uh, uh, you know, is a hoax. Um, if they actually were to be convinced by the evidence, you know, um, if someone were to present them with evidence and they were to take it and say, okay, you know what? Actually, I'm going to change my view. I've been saying on the radio for 30 years that climate change was a hoax, but now I'm going to say it's real. 
Uh, now I've I've been convinced it would uh, destroy their lives. You know, <laughs> like they they would lo- you know they would lose their radio show. All their friends and family yeah. who all agree with them about this would you know would be shocked by what they did. They would they would sort of take this enormous social hit to their identity not even just personally i mean you know we can also talk about like how you know how how it would change their own conception of themselves as a person but also in that broader sense of identity where it's who are who you exactly. are in society yeah it it would destroy that as well so of yeah. course someone would protect that thing about themselves and that's an extreme example a, a pundit or someone like that but um th- uh, that is really what our so many of our beliefs about the world end up being tied into our most exactly. fundamental notions yes of ourselves. absolutely you're, you're spot on now and and that actually leads me on to to two other things that are that are relevant here um one of them is that that's why it's so important that when it comes to climate change, for example, specifically, that we um, talk about the leadership of political parties and that we examine what the leadership of political parties is doing. Because Hmm. you may recall not too long ago, maybe, well, 10 years ago, there was actually a bipartisan consensus in the U.S. that climate change is a problem and that we have to do something about it. Um, And it went as far as a law being proposed in Congress somewhere. I don't remember the the, uh, details, but I think um, uh, McCain was involved in that. Um, There was was a semi-bipartisan cap-and-trade proposal uh, that was sort of early in the Obama years, and then... Even I, I was recently reading that George H.W. Bush um, around that election yes. uh, or George H.W. Bush, you know, you know, made speeches about we have Absolutely. to take climate change seriously. Absolutely. And George and George W. Bush, I believe, even, you know, uh, campaigned a little bit on, you know, uh, we have to be good stewards of the environment, that kind of thing. It was it was a relatively mainstream, non-politicized, non-politicized idea until the middle of the George George W. Bush years when the uh, the sort of fossil fuel industry really started going hard. Yeah, absolutely. And and it is a that's precisely right. And it's a consequence of that, that people have become polarized over this issue. And there's research by Robert Brulley, who a sociologist who's shown that that people's attitudes towards climate change and the polarization was a consequence of leadership uh, signals being sent by the Republican elite, that they were walking away from this problem. And it has now become some sort of a tribal totem almost. You know, I'm Republican, therefore I have to deny that climate change is a problem. And you're absolutely right. Under those conditions, it's extremely difficult for people to to change their minds. However, I think it would be very easy for people to change their mind again if a Republican leadership emerged that returned the Republican Party back to the basic Mm. science. Um, So it works both ways. Um, If we can shift the political discourse through the leadership, then the the partisans will follow. They are sensitive to to cues from what is uh, um, being said by the leadership. So um, the other thing that's relevant in what you've said is that people's opinions are in part determined by what they think others around them are thinking. You've already said that, you know. If everybody else around me thinks climate change is a hoax, well, then who am I to disagree with that? Now, that is a very, very fundamental fact about human cognition. And it has all sorts of implications that I think are underappreciated. Now, one of the implications of that is that if you create the appearance of people agreeing with you, um, rather than the reality, just an appearance then those people who fall for that appearance become much more entrenched in their uh-huh. opinions. Now, let me, let me illustrate that again with an example from climate change. In Australia, and that's where the study was done, that's why I'm mentioning uh, Australia, only about 8% of the people are denying that the climate is changing. It's, it's a very small number of people who hold that extreme view that there is no climate change. However, those 8% think 
that half the population is sharing their opinion. And that vast misperception of how popular their opinion is, that is what makes them completely entrenched in their beliefs and makes it extremely difficult to uh, change their beliefs. Now, this is really interesting from the perspective of cognitive psychology, but also from the perspective of uh, information technology, because the reason this can happen is because the Internet affords anyone to create a knowledge community with others all around the world for any opinion, no matter how bizarre. And this is something that was impossible before the Internet was invented. I often think that's a great underappreciated thing that the Internet has done is allow people to group in any configuration. I mean, just, you know, your specific fetish, your particular hobby, like that, that instant community forming around anything and everything is such a vast sort of social reorganization that that I don't know if we comment often upon. Totally. And, and, you know, it's all very positive in many situations. You know, it's wonderful if I have an esoteric hobby and I can hook up with people in Kazakhstan who are also into the same thing, you know, collecting teaspoons or whatever it might be. That's wonderful. Um, and, And we should all benefit from that. But when it becomes problematic is if people form a grouping uh, around the belief that the earth is flat, let's say. And they certainly have. They then only talk to the people who also think that. (laughs) And they all think, Jesus, everybody thinks that way. And that's when you get a problem, because you then have these people who hold bizarre beliefs who will never change those beliefs. And if those beliefs become politically relevant, and if people become politically engaged with those beliefs, then you may have the kind of problem we're having now where there is a lot of climate denial uh, happening out there, even though in the scientific community the issue is not being debated. You know, there's no, there's just no debate about the fundamental fact that the climate is changing because of greenhouse right, gas but, emissions. But if you're um, in that small community of, you know, you're on, you're on those specific Reddit forums, you're, you're in that Twitter community, you're watching those YouTube shows, exactly. and they are only bringing on that small sliver of scientists who are the contrarian denialist scientists, then you, you get, and, and they're like, hey, this is what every, every reasonable person believes, then it's easy to paint the other folks as the, as the crazy ones, and you inflate your own sense of how many people believe this. Exactly. And it's the the inflation of the size of the community that the Internet permits. And that is something completely new. And it is something completely underappreciated because most people don't appreciate how important it is that we have a sense of our uh, beliefs being shared by others. Here's my uh, my only uh, you know question to counter that, and, and you know this is just based on my own anecdotal evidence. Something that I feel has really changed with the rise of the internet is, you know, I felt like in the environment I grew up in, you know, I gr- grew up in a, a sort of homogenized uh, you know environment politically, and in, in uh, you know living on the East Coast, and you know folks in the you know, right wing wrestlers depicted as far away and and, you know, not like around. You know what I mean? And I had this very yeah. strong sense and say the college that I went to. Oh, everyone here agrees on everything. Every right person, every every right thinking person surely would agree on this point. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, but now with the Internet, you know, an environment like Twitter, the people who disagree with you are so right front and center right there. You know, you're you're so, you, you, you know, you, you're sort of smack in front of them every day. And in fact, they'll go, you know, search through, you know, Twitter to find people who disagree with them to go, you know, tweet angry things at you, et cetera. You know, uh, right. it, it often feels like, you know, the uh, uh, these various sides of all these various issues are like more in collision than they used to be as well. And that, and, and that you sort of run across those feelings more often, you know, opposing feelings more often on a daily basis. I, at least I feel that way. I, I, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting. It's an interesting point. I mean, I know exactly what you're saying, um, but I'm not sure that that sort of exposure to the opposing um, side of politics is actually leading to a dialogue. I mean, it is usually just 
people throwing insults at each other. And, and uh, I mean, one of the things about the Internet and Twitter in particular is that it's very uh, uh, uncivil. Yes. And, yeah, so I, um, um, I'm not sure that that's progress, <laughs> although, uh, you know, we have to find a way of, of um, enhancing communication and making it civil again. And, right. um, uh, yeah, well... That's what my research is also about. And one of the things that we're examining at the moment is to find ways whether maybe technology can be of assistance in this and, and help to you know, diffuse the uh, toxicity of public discourse. And uh, just to give you one example that I really love and just came across recently, there's a uh, newspaper in Norway that has, is trying this out now, um, where you cannot leave a comment on an article until after you've passed a quiz on the content of that article. Right. So, which I think is absolutely wonderful. So you can't just read the headline of this article, get really angry about it, and then bang out some comment that has nothing to do with what, what, what was said in the article, because you wouldn't get there. You, to leave a comment, you have to pass a comprehension test. <laughs> and that also means you got, first of all, you got to read the thing. Secondly, you got to answer the questions right. So you have to understand what you've read. And the whole while, you're, you've got time to cool off. Yeah. And so that, to me, is one way in which very simple technology can probably make a considerable difference to the civility of discourse because it is filtering out people who are who are not reading things it is filtering out people who don't understand what they read it's filtering out people who are hot under the collar you know because they they're forced to take their time to deliberate about this quiz and it's a yeah to me that's a wonderful idea because it doesn't censor anybody it just kind of creates an environment where it's much more difficult to be <laughs> rash and right uninformed in your comments. Yeah, I often think about, I think we often uh, often underestimate or, uh, you know, we're not aware of how much the design of our digital spaces affects the kind of discourse that happens there. Exactly. So the fact yes. that, you know, twi you know, Twitter has these characteristics where everything that you write on Twitter is universally public and searchable. It's permanent, right? It persists unless you actively go delete the comment. And right. anyone can speak to anyone else at any time, you know, with equal uh, sort of, you know, access. Everyone has equal access to everyone else, you know, um, yeah. which uh, on the face of it sounds, uh, you know, oh, and also everyone is forced to write in very short form, right? Um, yeah. And so on the face of which it, which I actually enjoy, I love Twitter. I think that's you know, a wonderful um, way to sharpen your mind and to become efficient. I, I, I love writing that way as well, but it turns out to be those characteristics put together turn out to be recipes for the most horrible, unproductive yes. arguments where yeah. people will go search for, you know, now the culture of Twitter has become people waking up searching for people they disagree with so they can go argue with them, um, not even yeah. knowing who they are, you know, like the yeah. the, the fact that, it always strikes me that, and we're getting a little far afield from the topic here, so we'll get back in just a moment, but it always strikes me that, you know, most of the time on Twitter, you actually don't know who you're arguing with. You know, people will quote tweet each other and say, you know, look at this asshole, look what they said, how dare they, this person is racist or this person is, you know, uh, uh, biased or yeah. whatever, and they don't realize they could be saying this to a 13-year-old. They could be saying this yeah. to someone. If they saw exactly. this person in person, they might say, yeah. oh, my God. This person is – I know why they feel this way and I'm going to be a little bit kinder to them yeah. because I, I see in real life who they are. But it, when yeah. they're just a tiny avatar and a weird, you know, fake name, they, you know, exactly. you could – a lot of times people are arguing with children. You know, someone will yeah. – yeah. an adult well, – I always – well, I, I never argue back. I mean I just mute people right. who I think don't have anything productive to say or who have revealed themselves to be trolls and then – you know, I'm no longer bothered by that, and I I don't actually engage with with people like that. And um, but just well, two things on that. The the first thing is that um, we know a little bit about little bit about what makes people troll. You know, this trolling behavior mm -hmm. to show up and be disruptive in a um, discussion or start to insult people simply for the sake of getting them angry. 
Um, and it turns out that if you look at the personality of those trolls, that they are actually some fairly hmm, twisted people. They tend to score high on sadism, for example, mm. and other uh, aspects of a personality that are that are you know known as the dark triad, the sort of dark aspects of our personality. Very ominous. And the people dark who triad. score high on that are the ones who love to troll. So, you know, we're not talking about necessarily nice people here. And you're absolutely right. Twitter is a medium that is kind of, you know, allowing those people, at least at the moment, um, to uh, dominate the discussion. Right. But again, you know, there are solutions. And one of the solutions is that you teach people, you know, starting in school maybe, you teach people what we call information discernment, mm. which is the ability to differentiate um, between information that's likely to be valid and other stuff that is clearly nonsense. And it is actually surprisingly difficult to do unless you're trained in it. But we can train people. We have had, there's some research out there to suggest that you know, we can actually get students um, to become more discerning in what they accept and what they don't accept. And also, you can teach people to protect themselves against uh, trolls because um, on Twitter you can mute people, mute, sorry, mute people, you can block people in comments, um, you can, you know, usually report abusive comments to whoever is, is hosting the site. So there are ways in which all of us can, can protect ourselves. And I think that's an important point to realize that we do have some recourse to uh, the digital world. We, we don't have to be exposed to all this abuse. Some, well, often enough, we can just protect ourselves against that. Well, I'm here talking to Professor Stephen Lewandowski. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases. I ask them questions. They're good ones. And then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, my dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flobie, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to University of Bristol psychology professor Stephen Lewandowski. So I, I'm really curious about that uh, teaching information discernment. Um, like, what's a you know what's a technique that you could teach people? Uh, you know, say starting in school. Uh, what's an example of that? Well, for example, you can. I mean, uh, uh, you start up with a very totally basic question, like you know, if you Google something and you look at the first site, does that always give you the right answer? And um, surprisingly, if you ask young people, you know kids in school, teenagers, they they will say, yeah, you know, I Google it and then I know the answer. And they don't actually realize that just because it's up there, um, information might be completely false or misleading. So you can start at the very basics and tell people, well, actually, you know, yeah. maybe half the stuff or whatever you might stumble upon out there is not um, correct information. And then you can say, well, depending on what you're looking at, just, um, you know, turn it into a fun game. Why don't we try and find out? Be a sleuth and find out whether or not you can trust this uh, uh, website. And, you know, you can teach people about the difference between astroturfing and genuine um, information. So, uh, especially in climate change, there's a lot of uh, websites out there that pretend to be scientific. You know, they have science in the name, 
for example. But then it turns out that they're uh, not at all scientific. Quite on the contrary, they're they're financed by some uh, think tank, quote unquote, or some you know lobbying organization for the fossil fuel industry. And and it's easy. I mean, for me, it's dead easy. I take one look and I know, and I just laugh it off. Um, and once you're you know, it mature and you've sort of practiced that skill, you can you can very quickly find out uh, whether something is genuine or not. And and I think it's actually a lot of fun, or it could be a lot of fun for students to learn this. But is, isn't there a concern, though, uh, and this is where, you know, the conversation gets a little meta, but isn't there a concern that, that people might then use those skills to confirm, you know, what they what they already believe, uh, because I, I read a really interesting article. I believe it was by Dana Boyd um, last year. Uh, I'm, this is off the top of my head. So this is, I, I, I'm sorry. I, my entire personality is I'm the guy who half remembers an article he read five years ago. So you'll have to forgive me. But that's what my entire show is. <laughs> well, based that's on. that's pretty good. My students probably remember one tenth. So you're doing really well. <laughs> OK, great. Literally, this is our whole writer's room as everyone's going. I think I read an article once. And then we have to go find find the article so we can actually like read it again and cite it. Um, right. But uh, uh, it was the idea that uh, her, her thesis was that uh, the media literacy training that you know uh, people had been spreading in you know for the last fifteen years had backfired uh, to use hmm. a phrase um, a, a yeah. bit because it had enabled people to. Uh, the message that a lot of people had taken was, well, don't trust anything you hear. You know, the the, the message of, and it's something we've said on our show before, hey, you know what, go do your own research. You know, that feels very empowering. It's very fun. It feels like when a teacher says that, it feels enlightened. You know, hey, don't take my word for it. Go do your own research. But the fact is, you know, people, uh, the average person on many topics is uh, not, Oh, you not always well equipped to do their own research on everything, yeah. right? Like, like the same yeah, person totally. can't be an expert on vaccines and climate change Absolutely. and yeah. you know politics and all these other topics. At some yes. point, they're going to have to trust somebody, and if they're yes. trained to never trust anyone, then uh, they can end up in this world where they uh, take no, no authority other than what the other people are saying on Reddit or you know on well, Facebook. Well, precisely, you're 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 spot on, and this is a problem. If all we're teaching people is to be skeptical and critical then uh, and I can observe this in my students you know we sort of constantly teach them to be critical about research and this and that and the other and all that happens in the end is that they always find fault with everything Hmm. um, because they're so desperate in in being critical that they then find something to critique that actually isn't really a big deal right and so yes it, it just teaching people to be critical or just teaching them to be skeptical about a source doesn't achieve much other than to make people cynical and and uh, um, yeah and then as you said they only believe what their friends are telling them and nothing that they read online so I don't think that's the way forward but what we can do is we can teach people to um, identify weak arguments, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one of the things I've done recently, last year I published a paper that showed that um, climate denial, people who deny uh, climate change, that's nearly always incoherent. The arguments that are being advanced do not cohere into any consistent pattern. Um, so, for example, somebody might say, a so-called climate skeptic, they might say, oh, there's no way you can measure temperature because, you know, thermometers are just too unreliable and there aren't enough of them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but then, you know, which is kind of nonsense to begin with. But, hey, you know, at first glance, if you don't know the right answer or if you don't know what's really going on, then, you know, you might think, oh, gee, that's, uh, yeah, okay, maybe. But then that same person the next day or, or even five minutes later will say, oh, you know, I'm absolutely sure that there hasn't been any global warming in the last 15 years. And again, you know, that's nonsense, but it has some sort of plausibility at first glance. But now think about what he's just done. He said, I cannot measure temperature, but I'm sure of the temperature right. uh, that it hasn't gone up in 15 years. Now, that's incoherent. That just makes absolutely no sense. You either 
believe that you can measure temperature and then you can make a claim about it not warming. Or um, you don't think temperature can be measured and then you don't talk about temperature at all. You just say, oh, well, you, you can't know this and walk away from it. And so I think we've cataloged up to 250 or so incoherent arguments um, that people have made about climate change when they deny it. And so what we're now trying to do, and I don't have those answers yet, but what we're now trying to do is to train people or teach people to recognize arguments that are incoherent or that are weak for other reasons. Um, And then once they can detect arguments like that, um, then I think it becomes more likely that they can tell good information from bad information. Because good and bad information has to differ on some level. And I think it differs on the level of the quality of argument that is being offered. Right. It's such a it's such a tricky issue to deal with um, because, you know, on our on our show, this is something that I would like to explore more, you know, in my own work is is helping the audience, you know, helping give them the tools to tell good arguments from bad arguments, because the strange thing that happens to us a lot is, you know, we work very hard to make sure our arguments are very sound. You know, sometimes they are they have errors and that's, you know, we're we're working to, you know, do these sort of correction segments when that happens. But, you know, uh, obviously. Obviously, people publish, you know, responses to our pieces. There's, you know, people publish videos on YouTube. And uh, we're, we're often struck by these responses where the, the argument that is being made against the piece is doesn't make any sense. Like it's incoherent in a way that you <laughs> yeah. said it's making yeah. a fundamental math error or it's, you know, comparing apples and oranges in a way. Or yes. there was actually a dude who, you know, we we had an episode come out about, you know, uh, losing weight. And this guy was arguing that my argument was wrong because I'm fat. And he, <laughs> that was his, <laughs> that was his opening. He was like, why, why should we take a nutrition advice from a fat fuck like Adam? I was like, all right, this is very now. I think most people can see that and say, OK, this guy is very silly and in fact, in fact, you know, in his comments, people were like, why, why, why do you have to personally insult him? <laughs> this is, you know, you're not, right. you're not doing yourself any favors. So people have yeah. a good, have a good fine tuned, you know, uh, notion of that. But on some of these other arguments, which, which, you know, w- there've been a few times that, that people post response videos where it seems sciency and it, it sounds, you know, it's got the, it, it, it sounds to the ear like it's a good argument, you know, and it's, yes. and the argument might even be kind of intuitively appealing and, it's you know difficult to explain why uh, the argument is in fact incoherent, and we're sort of faced with the decision of do we uh, respond to a bad argument, um, but thereby you know give it you know sort of elevate it and give it you know more attention, right? Um, or do we? Well, that's always the dilemma, isn't it? I mean, because whenever you're trying to engage with something that is complete nonsense, you're also potentially amplifying the nonsense. And so, yeah, that's an extremely uh, nuanced and and difficult question to answer. Um, However, we do know from the literature that teaching people by getting them to analyze false arguments is um, extremely productive and um, successful. Mm. There there is a large literature out there uh, called you know, it's on refutation-based learning, that one way you can teach people is to give them something that is wrong and you then get them as an exercise to refute that wrong information. And in so doing, people learn the correct information much better than they otherwise would. There's, there's quite a large body of literature on this out there, and I believe that to be true. Now, the difficulty with that is that that only works if people actually are paying attention. So if you have them in the classroom, that's great, you know, because they have to be there, they have to take an exam, they have to learn this stuff, they want to learn this stuff. And then, you know, you can be sure that they will spend the effort needed to refute the argument. The difficulty is that if you're trying to refute something that some dude was saying on YouTube, well, how do you know that your refutation is going to be listened to by anyone? You know, yeah. maybe the person who's listening to it is sort of doing three other things at the same time. And and then we don't know whether that yeah. uh, refutation works at all or whether it might then actually induce a backfire effect because 
um, you're reinforcing the nonsense. And again, that's a study I'm working on right now really? to find out whether there are conditions under which the refutation-based argumentation is backfiring because people don't pay enough attention. Well, l- let me ask you this, um, because you know, I-, I think a lot of times people he- you know, hear about this topic and-, and again, they say, OK, that's why the other side believes what they believe. You know, is because mm-hmm. of the backfire effect and identity protective cognition and all right. of these cognitive errors and biases. And we need to correct them for the sake of those people. Right. Um, but what what I'm more inclined to think about when I hear this topic is what does this say about what I believe and about mm-hmm. my own uh, suite of beliefs? You know, is it mm-hmm. um, the case that. You know, I only, you know, uh, am accepting what information I take in based on where I grew up and what the people around me are saying. Mm. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, am I rejecting information just because it doesn't fit with my identity? And how can I really be sure about what I believe? I mean, that that to me seems like the main, you know, my first project is always to perfect my own knowledge. And, you you know, I I am always sort of trying to question what I think I know. And I find it very difficult to know how to get around the backfire effect and around these suite of effects in my own life. Uh, And and that's more interesting to me than sort of criticizing what others are doing. I mean, how do you know that you are not, you know, we've been talking about climate change. How do you know Mm -hmm. that you're not just backfiring on, you know, (laughs) all of the good climate denial information out there? And in fact, your own view is socially, you know, an identity constructed? Well, okay, yeah, that's a very good question. And I mean, in general, my answer is that, you know, if I base my opinion on what is being published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature, then, you know, I have a fairly good chance that I'm tapping into the best available knowledge at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean it has to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we know everything. But whatever issue I'm looking at, if I want to know an answer to that, then I go to Google Scholar. I don't go to Google. I go to Google Scholar. Mm. Because what Google Scholar does is to restrict the search to the scientific literature. And then if I want to inform myself, I read articles that are published in journals that I can ascertain, if I don't know them already, I can ascertain whether they they have a good reputation or not. Um, And then, you know, I can gradually build some confidence in the information that I'm reading based on the fact that it has been peer-reviewed. And... If I contrast that to just going onto Google and randomly grabbing a blog from somewhere, well, chances are that the blog stuff is probably not as good as what you could read in the in the scientific literature. Yeah. So that's basically my uh, um, response to that, that, that I try to base my opinions on scientific evidence wherever possible. Now, sometimes you can't do that. You know, if somebody's asking me something about gosh, I don't know, politics in New York City or whatever, then I can't go to the peer-reviewed literature. I just have to make a judgment of that based on my own biases and everything else. But in those situations, I would then also hold that opinion with with far less certainty because I would know that I'm expressing a political opinion here, not a scientific fact. So so that's one thing that, that I would do. And the other thing is, you know, it... If, if I'm confronted with people who disagree with me, but I'm absolutely convinced that their argumentation is flawed because it is incoherent, for example, well, then that doesn't prove me right. Hmm. But what it does do is it allows me to dismiss the opposing argument because it's just not good enough. You know, if things don't hold any water, if some guy walks up to me and says, we can't measure temperature, but it hasn't warmed in 15 years, well, I know they're wrong at least once because, you know, that's incoherent. That makes no sense. And I can then move on and I can I can uh, look elsewhere for, for information. So, you know, I can analyze the opposing arguments and dismiss them. That doesn't prove me right. But I can look at my arguments and work out what they're based on. And if I base it on scientific information, well, then, you know, I'm I'm comfortable in the assumption that they're probably a little better than what the uh, blogs are saying out there. 
That's uh, that. That all sounds like wonderful, wonderful practices of mind. And uh, I mean, I certainly try to do the same things myself, and I try to you know rest my beliefs on the sort of you know bedrock of uh, of science. Uh, you know that okay, the, you know science has best practices for finding out information, and and hopefully I well. can uh, uh, rest it on those. Um, I, I just. You know, uh, for me, I always uh, find these sorts of topics profoundly unsettling in terms of, you know, how they change, you know, my own. View. Look, my my main goal in life is to understand the world as it truly is. Um, right. And yeah. it, it's much harder to know if you are doing that than, you know, we would hope it would. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, it, it is very difficult when it, and especially when it comes to issues, you know, relating to politics or society or culture or your personal relationships or all the things that are not subject necessarily to scientific investigation. Right. Because then, you know, whatever I've just said is, is you know, you, you can't apply that to your views about, you know, gardening in, in, in the suburb in L.A. There's just no literature on that. So you have to find a different way of coming to a judgment there. And, uh, no, I think we're, we're all confronted with the same problem. And one of the things that is results from that, to me at least, is that we have to have some you know, degree of humility in um, how strongly we hold beliefs. And as scientists, you know, we're, we're trained constantly not to, always, not to ever say that we know the truth, for example, hmm. because we don't. Um, however, having said that, I'm absolutely convinced that gravity is for real and that <laughs> the Earth is revolving around, us, <laughs> around right. the sun, and no one would, would disagree with me on this. So... I think we have to strike a balance between knowing the things we know for sure with certainty and being willing to admit that it might not be so for other things that are at the leading edge of, of knowledge. I think we have to be calibrated in the extent to which we cling to our knowledge. I can't disagree with that. And I think it comes back to what we were saying earlier about, about the culture catching up to the world that we live in and, and trying to develop a, a a culture of you know that uh that is a culture of knowledge finding that sort of seeks out the facts and is better at uh separating one from the other it it always strikes me that everyone always said growing up you know that hey don't trust what you read on wikipedia you know wikipedia is a bad source don't trust what you read there because anyone can edit it and now in today's day and age i've always been struck by you know what wikipedia actually is one of the better sources of information on the internet it is like yeah. despite the polarization of the time when you go to you can go to a really polarized page and find a very well sourced very even handed article and it's because my belief is that the culture is uh, on that site is so so good that they are very respectful of each other for the most part that they have a, a really set of practices to try to weed out good information from bad and it's you know it's all these volunteers who are very dedicated just chatting on the page but that culture has resulted in a good uh, you know a good body of knowledge finding and you don't even hear that many people saying ah wikipedia is biased people don't even really say that that often no, and I think I think you're right, and I I'm you know I think Wikipedia is is actually a fascinating experiment, and it proves to me, or demonstrates to me that you know crowdsourcing and uh, collaborative knowledge production is possible. But I think one of the crucial elements of Wikipedia is that they do have gatekeepers. They do have people, professional editors, who are enforcing the rules and who are checking things mm -hmm. out and who make recommendations. For example, recently they recommended against using the Daily Mail, which is one of the UK's tabloids that has a shocking reputation for inaccuracy. Right. And so that's, um, I think, why it works. And, um, and, and yeah, we can learn from that. I, th I think maybe we have to do something on Twitter or other sites that have a problem with lack of civility that is borrowing some of the things we've learned from uh, Wikipedia. And, you know, if I look around the place, I'm impressed by how many people are out there who are looking for solutions to these problems, like this Norwegian newspaper I just mentioned right. with a quiz before you leave a comment. You know, to me, that's just a classic 
wonderful innovation that that I can't see how anybody could disagree with that and <laughs> feel that they're being censored by this, for example. So, um, and I think there there are other things we can do. You know, there there there's work on uh, colleagues of mine here at Bristol are working on this. Um, they're trying to look at the communication structure of networks between people. And they can then identify from simply the way they talk to what they, no, sorry, not what they say to each other, but how they talk to each other. Um, they can identify when people are at risk of becoming isolated or radicalized mm. or turning into this echo chamber of self-reinforcing communication. And, and you know, so, so we can detect that. And then all one might do is to just suggest to these people, hey, you know, how about you read this thing over here and you nudge them out of their echo chamber into other, uh, um, you know, territory without pr confronting them with information that, that is just way too challenging for them to read. Right. Because, you know, the, the, the solution to a lot of the stuff, overcoming polarization and getting people out of their echo chambers, is not to clobber them over the head with completely contrarian information. But there is a sweet spot there where you can offer people something that is new and interesting and different, but similar enough to what they're thinking so that they can accept it and they can read it without uh, throwing a hissy fit. Right. It's giving them that new narrative that uh, uh, that, that replaces the old narrative like you talk about on the show and, and uh, that, that, That's right. that, uh, that, that will hopefully stop them from backfiring. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, I, I thank you so much for uh, that's all the time we have. Unfortunately, I could, man, I could talk about this topic for hours, but because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this is, I mean, this is so much cuts to the core of what I do. I find it so fascinating. Right. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it. Well, thank you for having me again. It was great to talk to you again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you once again to Stephen for coming on the show. And that is it for this week's Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in just two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shira Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend. Tell a friend. They might be interested in this. Hey, if, you're, if you've got a friend and you're worried about them backfiring on whatever it is they're wrong about, first give them this podcast so they can learn about how to, you know, have some better, uh, you know, mental, uh, what did Stephen call it, discernment techniques, and then tell them the thing you were trying to tell them. Maybe it'll help. I don't know. But either way, we'll get an extra listener. That'll be great for us, great for the show, and great for your friend. Or you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. And once again, Adam Ruins Everything is back every Tuesday night on True TV at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. You can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. Until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.